Director Franklin puts a real face on crime here. Seeing the artistry and fresh talent in one false move gave me the greatest joy of any film this year. That's why I'm putting it number one. Discovering a picture like this is one of the highs of being a film critic, the real highs. That's why it's at the top of my list. It's just below the top of my list. Ooh. It's in the number two position. Okay. I felt my spine tingling when I watched this movie, and I don't use that as a, as a <laughs> phrase. My spine yes, it tingled. Was, it, it was did. exciting to this watch. This movie is so good. It really makes me look forward to what Carl Franklin yes. does next. And if the Academy were really looking at excellence in filmmaking, they would nominate this as one of the best five films of the year instead of some bloated multi-million dollar star vehicle that has nothing going for it except respectability and a lot of big agents involved. This is where the cutting edge of American movies is with small pictures involving yeah. talented, dedicated people who know how to put together a scene and put together right. a story and make us really care from beginning to end about the characters. It's I was, a great film. I was surprised with it and I like seeing it done in a very familiar genre, the cross-country killers, right. cop chasing. We've seen thousands of films like this, mm -hmm. but not like this. film fans welcome back to a brand new episode of not a bomb podcast this is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bombed in the movie theaters or maybe the critics just didn't like brad uh we we wrapped up spooktober that was a lot of fun i don't know about you but um the the five movies we talked about i think we're all stellar uh yes and the audience seemed to appreciate those five picks as well but troy yes i am so fired up Strep throat can't even keep me down. Oh yeah, you're you uh, are coming off some strep throat. Why are you so fired up, Brad? I I am fired up because we were talking about. I say sci-fi is my favorite genre, but I think film noir was the genre that got me into film and film discussion and film criticism, and it helped me grow my pretentious bone that I have in my body, Troy. Okay. <laughs> It uh, makes total sense. You know, what's interesting is most of the films, most of them, when when we talk about it, um, we're talking about films that definitely bombed at the box office, but they usually come in pretty low with the critics as well. Um, this one is is not unique, but when we talk about the production and, and development, it does talk to the power of the movie critic at one point in time. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's so much the case now but um back not when, when every white boy has a podcast that talks about films troy true yeah it's a bit diluted but um mm -hmm. yeah this this month we're talking about a genre that i think is near and dear to both of our hearts which is really film noir but we want to do something a little bit different so uh we wanted to talk about neo-noir or modern film noir but before we do that i think it's important for those who aren't familiar with the genre itself to understand what film noir really is, where its inception came from, and what it's referring to. 
because there is a little bit of a distinction between classic film noir, which I know you and I are big fans of, mm-hmm. as well as what is considered neo-noir. So I'm going to kick it over to you. If if you were sitting down and explaining to somebody who has just no exposure to this genre, like how would you how would you describe its origins? Okay, so right then and there, I, I want to ask you a question because a lot of people have said, is film noir a film style or a film genre? I think it's both. I think, yeah, I (laughs) think exactly. I think what people have to understand is um, when, when we talk about film noir or neo noir, it wasn't like these directors or screenwriters sat down and went, Oh, I'm, I'm doing film noir. Yeah. That, that terminology came sort of after the fact of these films um, and, and was widely spread by critics who were talking about these films, right? Yeah, it was, it was a way to sort of classify films that were very similar in style into a categorization. So they all had the same style and therefore they could categorize them together. So like chicken and egg sort of deal there. So yeah. film noir, Troy, um, basically is uh, birthed in the 40s. Um, it basically peaks in the forties and the fifties. Uh, but we have to start back in the 19, actually 1916. So really? in the 1916, okay. uh, the German government essentially bans all foreign films. I know those Germans were, uh, they not were, liking the rest of the world at the they time. Were cantankerous around that time yes, period. Exactly. So this gives birth to German expressionism, mm-hmm. which essentially is a, a reflection on uh, emotions, the inner emotions of the Germans at the time um, and kind of trying to escape reality because that's the time their reality sucked. Um, and what that did is basically increase the demand for domestic films from the German uh, people. Um, and it basically is like triggered by topics of World War One. So we're, we're, we're talking about World War I, War world one stuff here um think about films like uh the cabinet of dr calibrady calibrady and like metropolis those are the big ones that people think about when they think about um german expressionism but again it is stylized with stark contrasts of light and shadow distorted sets uh psychological unease uh, because that's kind of how the german people were feeling at the time sure so basically when World War II comes around, uh, we get birth to essentially film noir. Uh, that comes the way of Fritz Lang is, I guess you could argue sort of the mo- the father of film noir in a way he brings his German expressionism to Hollywood and creates sort of the template for um, film noir. And I guess, you would say, well, what is that template? So it's basically, I think the first thing is like influence of like hard boiled crime fiction and like pulp novels. Um, so it's very pulpy, very crime um, influenced. Uh, World War II and post modern and post war realism. So that uncertainty, disillusionment from the World War II um, that played a huge role in film noir. Um, kind of showing the darker aspects of human nature. So again, it's a very reflective nature on how people were feeling at the time. Um, And then of course we have 
the French connection part of it, which is the film film noir, the term film noir, which is like dark, you know, you know, dark film. Right. Um, I guess they 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 give credit to that to Nico Frank as the first person to actually coin that in the 1940s. But essentially, it's a way for critics to recognize a distinctive style and tone of the films and like identify those common themes. And of course, everyone knows like the style is very uh, low key lighting, high contrast between light and dark, unusual camera angles. I guess is another one. Um, so and when then you course- when you say unusual camera angles, um, can can you give an example? Like we're looking. Um, lots of like long shots. So you would look in like the sort of the straight lines of how buildings and how, like all that stuff is basically played into and elongated in a way. Think of, I think the, one of the best ways to visualize it is think of the opening to Batman, the animated series. Okay. Like that visual style. It's more art deco, but they lean into the film noir there on, on how, elongated things can be because you want to play up the shadows so you can you can um make those stark shadows by making things look kind of extorted a little bit um, you, you could also play with the um geometry of a scene yes yes exactly, exactly. the dutch angle um, everything else of that nature right yeah a lot of dutch yeah, yeah. i don't yeah i guess dutch angle um, it, it's basically, with, you know, taking a camera and tilting it in such a fashion to where your viewing experience is uneasy to reflect the uneasiness yeah, it, yeah, of a scene. Yeah, exactly. Right? You're not looking. Um, it's not like straight down the barrel. So it, it does. It helps build that unease and that that tension. Um, and then film noir was was basically also sort of a low budget style of film. Like there wasn't. Mod, like modest budgets would be like a like a stretch. So they did a lot of on location stuff. That's why um, a lot of them look the same because they're shooting on the same locations, um, things like that. But yeah, so think of film noir as basically a film style and a genre rolled up, but it's got a look, it's got themes. Um, basically, comes out of World War II. Um, and yeah, I remember, I remember watching Turner classic movies with my parents and watching a ton of film noir when I was like ten years old. So do you do you remember the 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 classic film noir film? And I'm I'm not talking about some of the modern films because I know you're you're a huge Blade Runner fan, and that's mm-hmm. that's an example of neo noir or future noir, which is another subgenre, right? Yeah. Well, and so the, I also had seen when I was reading some stuff, they called anything that was like pre world war one proto noir, which I haven't really heard much proto noir. Then you have film noir and then neo noir. Would it become anything after like the fifties would be neo noir. Um, but after the heyday, it would be neo. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the film that kind of got you into it? We've talked film noir before. I just didn't know if there was a couple of titles off top of your head where you're like, Oh, hey, what I is mean, this? And and just went right down that path. I mean, the big sleep would be one. Um, the Maltese Falcon would be one. Double yeah. indemnity is probably that. That's I the mean, one I always go to. Like it, that in DOA. Um, DOA, yeah. I, you know, uh, Sunset Boulevard is another. I, I just think there is no reason why a ten-year-old Brad should <laughs> like uh, those films and and love film noir. But 
it was just something about it. It was totally different when I was is was watching it. But yeah, those are the ones. I mean, there was there was a hundred. I, I I don't remember the first one I saw because, like again, we're watching Turner Classic Movies and something is on and it's black and white and it's you know it's your it's your antagonist who is morally ambiguous, your femme fatale, uh, you know stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I remember it vividly just watching every week we would watch something. That's awesome. Yeah. The, so what, what we're concentrating on for this month is neo-noir. So we, we will talk one week. We're going to talk about a remake of a classic film noir film. Um, and we'll, we'll probably review both. But when we talk about neo-noir, there's, there's a really good article. I would encourage everybody to go and seek out. It's from the BFI but it's just called where to begin with neo-noir. So it was um, written by Paul O'Callaghan from uh, January of 2016. So there's a couple of things that he kind of talks about in terms of making a distinction between classic film noir and neo-noir. And again, you know, these are things that are being um, labeled or their labels being, you know, put on films that at the time period, the filmmaker might not necessarily think that they were dabbling in this. It Again, it's just a way to kind of talk about that film. And like you said, it, it's coming to fruition after about 1950. And in the article, he says, a strong case could be made for Jean-Luc Goddard as the primary forefather of neo-noir. And he lists things like Breathless in 1960, Bond mm-hmm. Apart in 1964, Alphaville in 65, but he's saying that that paved a way for a younger generation of Hollywood filmmakers to basically breathe new life into the film noir genre or style. Um, and I got Alphaville is so good. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think what, what's interesting. So I want to read this one excerpt cause it, I, I find this really fascinating. So while classic noir films often fixated on the complex psyches of their troubled protagonists, These later films were more outward-looking in the worldview, reflecting widespread mood of pessimism and distrust of authority that characterized the Cold War era. And he makes a a very distinct difference between film noir and neo-noir. So he says, while noir invariably offered a gloomy worldview with notions of good and evil muddied, ultimately, no crime could ever be seen to go unpunished. So if you think about those classic ones like DOA, Double Indemnity, um, all the characters are very dark and sometimes it's hard to find somebody to root for. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, whatever the crime or whatever the scenario is, it comes to a fitting conclusion based on the society norms of that time period. So bad guys are punished, criminals get the chair or go to jail um, it is very much holding on to that code of ethics for that time period, which just says, you know, crime doesn't go unpunished, right? So he's basically saying with the code's decline and we get into the 60s, Hollywood filmmakers were able to delve into much murkier territory and to address head on the dark subjects that noir was forced to skirt around. And more importantly, he talks about you know, this concept of sometimes these bad people get away with it. Mm-hmm. And that was some of the differences between film noir and neo-noir is they're they're tackling more social issues. 
Um, you're getting probably a bit more real life type scenarios and it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to end in just, um, a nice neat package where you walk away going, wow, that was crazy to follow that ride for 90 minutes with these people. And, um, but at the end of the day, you know, you go home safe knowing that everybody that did something wrong, like paid for it for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I've never heard that distinction before, but now that you say that, I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Any classic noir. It's like, Oh, the bad guys are getting what they deserve at the end of the film. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And so when you talk about some great examples of, um, of just this neo-noir, like the article article talks about like the best place to start is Chinatown with Jack Nicholson, Roman Polanski's film. Um, but they also give other examples like, um, the Coen brothers and, uh, things like Fargo or blood simple, which are, are great callbacks to that even Miller Miller's crossing to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. Um, you get Rian Johnson's, uh, brick, which is fantastic. Uh, kiss, kiss, bang, bang, Shane Black's film. So, you know, these, these things, um, are being made all the time. Memento, Christopher Nolan's Memento Mm -hmm. is, is one of the classics, but we tried to pick really four films and, and actually it's going to end up being five films because we're going to talk about the original source of one of these, but we tried to pick, um, four films that didn't get a lot of love from moviegoers when it was released and I know for the two that I picked are personal favorites of mine of, of film noir in general and specifically neo-noir. So, Brad, what's the first one we're going to talk about this month? Yeah. So we were going to talk about 1992's One False Move. Um, it was released May 8th of 1992 with a modest budget of $2.5 million. Yeah. Uh, it does fail to make back its production budget. Um, uh, box office run, it makes $1.5 million. Sadly, it's opening weekend. It makes $44,500. It makes $44,500. Yeah, I think I think it only sh- debuted in like four or five theaters. It was very, yeah, it, very limited. It opens in five theaters. So listen to this, though. Per average theater is $8,909. That yeah. is pretty crazy. I mean, like if you get a 3000 average at a theater, that's really good. Um, So this is like three times that. Um, And that's good enough for 23rd place. Listen to some of these films that he gets beat by. Uh, Basic Instinct, White (laughs) Men Can't Jump, Beethoven, yeah, The Player, Folks with an exclamation point, Wayne's World, Split Second, My Cousin Vinny, Deep Cover and Sleepwalkers. There's some uh, neo noir in there too. Deep there Cover. Is. Yep. The player yep. to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> basic Instinct, maybe sort of, kind of, a little bit. Yeah, a little you, bit. You, you get to this discussion like the early '90s had that um, erotic thriller, erotic thriller, which is uh, sort of birthed out of yeah. kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but critically. One false move sits at a 93% with the critics. That's with 57 critical reviews and a 75% with the audience. Um, that's with 2,500 audience reviews. Choice hour. Yes. The Christians do they, have a problem. They, they did review move. this. 
Yes. Oh, play, awesome. Play my, play my music. Okay. Um, I'm playing. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so for those not familiar, Movie Guide is a Christian website that reviews films, not for their quality, but for their content. And they use a plus four to minus four scale. Minus four being you're trying to sell a massive haul of cocaine. And plus four means you're going to heaven. Troy Sauer, where does one false move sit on their scale? Wow. Uh, this one's tough because it's a genre picture. It's got a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. There's also some social commentary in there. Um, I'm going to say a negative three. You are correct. Ooh, okay. I'm getting, okay. I'm getting better at this. You are. You are. Good yeah. job. What you need to know. One False Move is a tense cops and killers drama with a strong premise, which is squandered on brutal violence, ear-splitting foul language, and a disappointing finale. Oh. Instead of developing some interesting angles on culture shock and uh, character conflict, the film derails itself with two-bit coincidences and unnecessary roughness. Two-bit coincidences? Yeah. Did they watch the same film? I don't know. And here we go. Content. 75 obscenities, 8 profanities, multiple murders by shooting, and a vicious stabbing in one sexual immorality implied. Oh, yeah. Okay. Minus three. Okay. And finally, films you could have seen May of 1992. This is a pretty solid month. We have K2, Split Seconds, Poison Ivy, uh, Crisscross, Lethal Weapon 3. If I told you Lethal Weapon 3 made $319 million, would you believe me? I, I would, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Alien 3, Encino Man, Far and Away. That was all one weekend. Jeez. Um, and then Sister Act, round out the films you could have seen May of 1993. Crazy to me. So th- this film, if you if you look it up, it has uh, like on IMDb it listed as 1991. So that's when it was finished, mm-hmm. and it actually sort of sat around in in distribution purgatory since we're keeping the church chat going. Yep. Um, and it and it and we'll talk about this in production and development, but it didn't actually get released until almost a year after it was completed. But I, I do have a question for you, Brad. Uh, was this the first time you'd ever seen one false move or had you seen it prior? Oh no, I've seen it before. Okay. Uh, I actually got to see this in the movie theater, which was, I'm jealous. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about why I sought it out, but let's talk, let's talk for a minute about the people who made the film. And, uh, we'll start with those behind the camera, specifically Carl Franklin. So for those of you don't know, Carl Franklin, he's an actor and a director. So before he was directing, I think most people of my age group would have known him as a, as a TV actor. So especially for television shows like Barnaby Jones, Rockford Files, Good Times, Incredible Hulk, Streets of San Francisco. I remember him from the A-Team. These are all shows before you were even born, Brad, I think. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, to be honest with you, I am not super familiar with Carl. Yeah. And so he had an acting career up until the point that he, um, in the late eighties, wanted to try his hand at directing. And so he does a short film thesis called Punk in 1986. He does a, a, a couple of just low-budget films um, in 89 called I, the Eagle 2, Inside the Enemy. 
Nowhere to Run, which I think was a David Carradine, Jason Priestley film. Yep. Uh, and, and he really didn't get any notoriety until this film, One False Move in 1992. And he ends up following that up with a Denzel Washington film, stays in the same genre, but Devil in the Blue Dress from 1995. Okay. That's also a pretty solid movie yes. as well. He works with Denzel again in 2003 for Out of Time, another you know nod mm-hmm. to the detective film noir. Yep. And, and quite honestly, he's been working off and on in, in film and television. Most recently, he's, he's done a lot of um, television. Uh, he did four episodes of Mindhunter on Netflix. He directed those in 2019. And uh, I think it was last year he did the first episode or an episode of Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Oh, the Netflix? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, he, I mean, he's still directing. Uh, and the screenplay, this is where it gets really interesting. The screenplay is done by two people. Billy Bob Thornton. Yes, that individual, Billy Bob Thornton, and Tom Epperson. So both of them and we'll talk about this when we talk about sort of the history of the film, wrote the screenplay for One False Move, which was 91, a family thing in 1996. So they both worked on that. Um, and they, I'm trying to think which one is family thing. Is that? That's the James Earl Jones and I think Robert okay. Duvall. Yep. Yep. Okay. They also co-wrote together The Gift in 2000, um, which was uh, sort of a thriller. Was it Kate Blanchett, Keanu Reeves, if I remember correctly? Or Kate Blanchett. Yes. Keanu yep. Reeves. That's a Sam Raimi film. Yes. Yep. Okay. And, uh, Jane Mansfield's car in 2012. I think what brought <laughs> B- Billy Bob Thornton. What do you think happens at the end of that movie, Troy of Jane Mansfield's car? Mm-hmm. It gets a tune up. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I don't know. Um, sling blade, Billy Bob Thornton won an Oscar for best adapted screenplay for 1996. Well, see, James, she, she died and she was decapitated in a car accident, but didn't she go? So it ends there versus like the tune oh, up I, or, okay. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Billy Bob Thornton sling blade. So won an Oscar for screenwriting just four years later after doing this thing. What do you think about Billy Bob Thornton? We're going to talk about him as an actor, but I guess might as well ask you now. I mean, where, where do you stand on him? I, I like Billy Bob Thornton quite a bit. Um, I he's interesting. Like he's got an interesting look. Um, he's got a crazy energy on when you see him on screen, especially that stuff he's doing in the early, the mid mid nineties to to ah uh, god, I don't know. He has a run for maybe twenty years where he's kind of killing it until he kind of gets into the comedy genre, which I, I like him like bad Santa, I think is pretty good. Bad news bears is okay, but he starts doing some sort of insufferable like Mr. Woodcock. Once he goes there, I'm not much of a fan, but leading up to that from like 96, well, 92 to two, uh, 2007. I, I, I really like his career. I mean, like you look at his 98, I think he's like in simple plan Armageddon. Um, guy, he's also in a ton. I mean, he's just in a ton of stuff, but I, I, I like him. I like his energy because he can go insane really quickly. Yeah. Um, and I, and I kind of dig that. Yeah. I, I keep forgetting how big of a powerhouse Billy Bob Thornton was as a creator in the nineties. So if you look at the screenplays and stuff that he put together, then look at him as an actor. It 
it's hard pressed to find somebody who equaled him in that creative output. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, he had probably a 15 year run that was just stellar. And I, I think people will go back and, and look at that because um, those screenplays, one false move, family thing, sling blade, the gift, they're, they're all fantastic. I don't know anything about Jane Mansfield's car outside of, like you said, how it's going to end. But um, I mean, I think a very underrated movie is the man who wasn't there. Yeah, he's he's fantastic in that. Yep. So uh, cinematography on this one's done by James L. Carter. Lots of television work. Um, We've talked about him before back on episode one, two, four, when we talked about Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre three from 1990. He shot that. There's one movie on his resume. And I kept I don't think I asked you this when we talked about Leatherface, but I totally forgot. He also was the cinematographer on this, and I, I want to know what you think of it. Destiny Turns on the Radio from 1995, starring one Quentin Tarantino. What, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, What do you think um, about that film? I mean, this isn't going to shock anyone. Uh, Tarantino's not the greatest actor of all time. And okay. The Johnny Destiny character is okay, uh, but everyone around him is, is pretty good. Uh, you know, James Belushi's in it. Uh, Nancy Travis is in it as yeah. well. Um, I even think like David Cross, Dylan McDermott is is solid. Um, I, I read. I saw it so I, many it, years ago. I, I just remember it being a train a wreck. It, it is kind. It's it's kind of bad. Okay, it's kind of bad. I, yeah, I didn't know if you were going to defend that one. No, um, because I would never defend Tarantino as an actor. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. <clears throat> Uh, the movie is produced by Jesse Beaton and Ben Myron. It's distributed by IRS Releasing. So just a little bit of information about IRS Releasing. IRS Records was a major record label founded by Miles Copeland and Jay Boberg and Carl Grasso in 79. And so the majority of how they made money was just um, you know producing records for um, like REM, The Go-Go's, Wall of Voodoo, Fine Young Cannibals, that's where their bread and butter was, right? Okay. Especially in the 80s. Now, they they got into film distribution. I, I want to say they did just a handful of films. And the ones that I can remember that they released was stuff like Shakes the Clown and uh, Circuitry Man. I think those were the two that I seen. Because when I saw that IRS logo, I'm like, oh, that's the, the record company. But I forgot they they did do um, just, you know, a few a few movies here and there. Okay. So let's talk about the cast real quick. Um, I, I really think you got a powerhouse in front of the camera, starting with Bill Paxton as Dale Hurricane Dixon. Um, Looking fine as hell in this movie. He does God look great. Damn. Is he still the only actor that's been killed by an alien predator in Terminator? Has anybody else hit that trifecta? Just I don't him? think so. Okay. We've, we've talked about him twice already. Streets of Fire, episode 10, he came up. Uh, Predator 2, which was episode 90. We talked about Bill Paxton. And if we haven't said this, we're going to, well, at least I'm going to say it, like, again, sound like a broken record. If you have not seen 2001's Frailty, where he also directed, you need to watch that movie. It is amazing. I don't, I don't know. I, I love Bill Paxton. I don't know where you stand. Yeah. I mean, it's... He's like a Southern psychological thriller. So I, I mean, in Kentucky, they give that to you at birth. So, um, (laughs) 
yeah, I, I, I think Bill Paxton is amazing. I think uh, anytime his character is given a nickname, like the extreme Bill, the extreme yeah. Harding uh, from Twister. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all in. Yeah, all in. I agree. We also got Cinda Williams as Fantasia, um, also known as Lila. You find that out later in the film. Also stunning in this movie. She is stunning. Around this time period, she was doing stuff like Mo Better Blues in in 1990. Uh, Does one false move in 91. After this film, marries Billy Bob Thornton. That didn't last very long. Uh, If you look at the rest of her filmography, I mean, it's deep, but it's it's meh. I mean, a lot of stuff you're not really going to watch. Was a little bit disappointed when I was looking at it earlier that her filmography wasn't better. Yeah, I, I was shocked where it went. Um, well, cause it doesn't go anywhere. Charlie. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we get Billy Bob Thornton, which we talked about. And again, just as a reminder how good he was in the nineties. So he is nominated for best actor for sling blade in 96, but he takes home the Oscar for the screenplay. He gets nominated. I bet if you did a trivia game and say Billy Bob Thornton won an Oscar for what people would say sling blade, but not for writing. Yeah. They, they might think it's for acting, but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, and then he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for 1998's A Simple Plan, which that movie may come up again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, he's still working. He's he's in a couple of high-profile projects like uh, The Gray Man, that uh, Apple movie, um, and uh, Devil's Peak, I think, was this year. The, um, the other name I just want to spend a minute on is Michael Beach as Pluto, a.k.a. Lane Franklin, now, this guy, 165 acting credits. When you see his face, you'll recognize him, um, but he's, he hasn't had, like, these big starring roles. I, I think One False Move is, like, one of his best ones. But, um, I mean, he's been in The Abyss in 1989, Infernal mm-hmm. Affairs in 1990, Cadence, the Martin Sheen film from the 90s. True Romance. True right? Romance and Shortcuts, the Robert Altman film. And, and even more recently, he played uh, uh, Jesse, who is Manta's father in Aquaman. So he's in there just like at the beginning of the film. Yeah, and he's also with Beale Street. Could uh, if Beale Street could talk yeah. as well? I think he's Frank. Which yep. that movie's very good. But yeah, he's yeah he's a really good character actor now. Um, yeah. Again, I would have thought after this movie, he would have had a bigger acting career. Um. Like I you agree. said, I, no one saw no one saw this movie, so yeah, it's not surprising. No, 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 I agree. I actually am kind of surprised. Like, I'm if there was a short list of Academy Award uh, nominations for Best Supporting Actor, I'm, I'm even wondering if he was on that list. I I think from that year he he had a chance. He's yeah. that good in this thing. He's also, uh, I think, if you still have it up, I think he's in the new Saw movie. Oh, and Saw. I think 10 he or did whatever. some. I saw X and then I think he did some voice acting for the spawn uh, HBO series. Oh, that's right. He did do some of that. Yep. Um, But okay. Those are our four main actors. There's two other ones um, that get some screen time and it's Earl Billings as McFeely and Jim Melter as Dud Cole. But probably when we talk about the film, we're going to be talking about Bill, Cinda, Billy and Michael more than anybody. Mm -hmm. So real quick, here's the history of the film production development. Um, are two screenwriters, Billy and Tom. They're friends from Arkansas. And around 1981, they decide to go out to Los Angeles and uh, try and make, make a living, right? 
And while they're out there, they have about $500 between them and are just working various jobs, barely making a buy. I think Billy Bob Thornton's trying to start a band. Um, Tom is like doing writing gigs and poetry and all this other stuff. And they do all these side jobs. So I don't know if they're sitting at a diner at a bar or something of that nature, but they meet a friend and they meet uh, Kirk the cop. So they become friends and Kirk the cop is, is hanging out with them and always telling stories. So Kirk tells them a story about the time he and his detective partner go to a tiny town in Lincoln County, Arkansas, chasing three felons, two men and a woman. The woman had a kid in star city. So Kirk, the cop and his partner travel to the small town and wait. And while the police officers are waiting, they meet a fellow officer named hurricane. And so Kirk, the cop, cop is talking about, you know, chasing down these, uh, yeah, almost. Yeah. Okay. Cock hurricane as well. Troy? Yeah. Cock hurricane. Um, so he's telling this story. He's, he's telling these stories about Lincoln County and specifically this other officer that everybody in the town called hurricane. So around 1987, Billy and Tom have about six unmade screenplays because they're, they're writing screenplays together. One of those screenplays is called hurricane. And uh, for anybody who read it, they go, oh, this is this is kind of like High Noon, that 1952 Gary Cooper film. And they basically took that structure and threw in Kirk the Cop's story, uh, and, and it was called Hurricane. So the script gained a bunch of notoriety in Hollywood and was um, called a hot spec script, right? So after three years of false starts, Hurricane finally finds a home and goes into pre-production. Filming is completed in May 1991. So like you said, it's not released until what, May 1992? Yeah, a whole year later. Yeah. But during that year, they're showing it to everybody. And um, it's being shopped around at festival screenings. And everybody loves this thing. Uh, and, and here's something really interesting. Um, the producers and director wanted to get it into the January 1992 Sundance Film Festival. But Sundance programmers already picked another crime film from an unknown director and thought having two crime films was just too much. Hmm. Plus Robert Redford, who saw this film said, Hey man, one false move was too bloody, had too high of a body count and too many guns. So, uh, do you, do you know what that other film is that it that would be, be reservoir dogs? It would be reservoir dogs. Yeah. So not they, bloody at all. <laughs> yeah. They chose that one over one false move. So as a result of that, um, this very low budget production was about to be released straight to home video, but it all of a sudden kind of became popular through word of mouth and it got a, a five theater release and it was primarily Siskel and Ebert, um, that was talking about this film. And as a result of that, it sort of convinced the distributors to give it a, a theatrical release and it sort of toured over the U.S. and all these art house theaters. So it had, you know, a, a long shelf life over the summer mm-hmm. of just going theater to theater. And the film, and this is what's crazy, was named Best Film of the Year by Gene Siskel. Roger Ebert had it listed number two. And it was one of the best films of 1992 by the National Review Board. So it got saved as a result of um, really people like Siskel and Ebert and in the film credit talking about this thing. It's kind of, it's impressive when you think about it, basically touring like 
a select number of theaters throughout the summer to come out with $1.5 million. Cause we talked about opening weekend. It makes $44,000. Yeah. I mean, it's got to do that 20, like 30 times to make back with a $1.5 million. So, I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. So I remember seeing the episode where they talked about this and reading about this film. And I was going to school at the university of Evansville in Evansville, Indiana. The closest place that was showing it was this art house theater in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio for a weekend. So drove there to go see it. I remember that day saw this film and then um, followed that up with a screening of uh, Jacques Cocteau's uh, Beauty and the Beast. So that was the double bill that day. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But one false move, I did get to see it in, in downtown Cincinnati during its theatrical run. And it was immediately one of those where uh, when it was available on VHS and, you know, again, trying to rent it and show it to as many people as possible. Um, there are a couple of ways you can actually get this. I, do, I did want to spend a little time for anybody who's interested because if you if you listen to us talk about the film and, and you go, oh, I, uh, I really want to check that out and you haven't seen it before, the most notable release right now is the Criterion version. That's so, one I have. Yeah, Criterion has a 4K release. Um, and if you get the 4K, you also get the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. But I want to point something out. Here's the special features on the Criterion disc, okay? You get commentary by Carl Franklin but it's basically the same commentary that they had released on the DVD version that was produced in 1998. Um, You also get uh, a 28 minute conversation with Carl Franklin and Billy Bob Thornton. You get the trailer and uh, you get a illustrated essay leaflet book it booklet within that release. Mm -hmm. So that that's the criterion version. So if you're looking for special features, it's a little bare bones to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, the transfer looks really good. Like I think, I think the 4K looks amazing. The 4K looks amazing. So what it does have going for it is that picture quality. Now, if you really like this film and you want to track down a copy that has more special features, you would have to get the imprint version, which was released in a neo noir box set with about you know five other films. Um, I think imprint's done two of these box sets, but the first one has one false move. Now this one has the trailer. It has a 17-minute interview with Michael Beach called Feeding the Soul. It has a 16-minute interview with um, Cynthia Williams called Finding My Voice. Um, It's got another special called Truth and Rhythm. And um, uh, Hurricane and Fantasia, a video essay. It's 25-minute long um, by film critic Chris O'Neill. You get the commentary that's on the Criterion track, which is that port of the 1998 commentary, but you get a second commentary as well. It's a new audio commentary recorded by director Shaka King and producer Brandon Harris. Um, And then you get a uh, 60-page illustrated booklet featuring essays by critics Walter Chaw and Peter um, Gavin, I think. So to be fair, the imprint is the imprint collection is much more expensive than the Criterion. It is the, the, I think I, I have both. I, I am glad I, I kind of jumped on those imprint neo-noirs. I mean, when they announced it, I, I grabbed it. 
because they're almost impossible to get. Now. Yeah, those those films in that box set, I think all of them are, are are stellar and fantastic. We may talk about that on another show. But if anybody is interested in like what the differences are between those, that that's where it comes down to. I think you got great. You can't go wrong with the Criterion release. The 4K is mm-hmm. fantastic. But if you're one of those completists and you're like, man, I want to see all of this stuff on it. Imprint has, um, I think, the better special features between the two. And Imprint is that region free or is it region? It's region free. Okay. Yeah, but you know, it, it's not a standalone release, so unfortunately, you gotta you gotta pay the coin yeah. to get that box set. I think it usually runs like 125 to 150 American. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think is it Imprint's uh, Australian? They're that Australian. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, just. Real quick, um, did you see this before or after Reservoir Dogs by any chance? Oh, after. Much after? Way later, yeah. Yeah, how did how did you find out about this film? Was it just word of mouth or? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know originally how I came across this. I no. just saw, I, you know, that's a good question. Okay. Well, Somebody, how about. I, I, I might have just rented it one day, you okay. know. We rented films from Blockbuster all the time, so it might have been just like, okay. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. Like I said, I I came across it because of the Siskel and Ebert thing. Um, luck, luck for me, probably. Luck. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this film. So, everybody else, stay tuned. Time for refreshment. Refreshment. For your enjoyment, there's hot, fresh popcorn, tempting, delicious hot dogs, and so many kinds of ice cream, and of course. Sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola for everybody at the refreshment counter now. Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. Chinatown, the most highly acclaimed film of 1974. Time magazine calls it an exotic and cunning entertainment. The Los Angeles Times calls Chinatown the finest American film of the year. And Rolling Stone says Chinatown is the most frightening, mesmerizing, spectacular movie of its kind I have ever seen. Chinatown, from Paramount Pictures, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. back uh brad i picked this film so obviously i like it this this is this was my choice to kick things off so where, where do you land on this i'm really curious i've been dying to talk to you about it um uh, i mean straight off the bat I, I i love this thing um it is sweaty and dirty southern film which i like because i as much as I like to reject it, I, I'm sort of a Southern boy in, in a way. <laughs> I know my accent right now sounds like I uh, have black lung from working in all the coal mines. Um, but it's raw and intense. Uh, anytime Billy Bob and Michael Beach are together, there's going to be a body count. Yeah. Um, it, it just is this intense film that, 
it's hard to explain because I, I I wouldn't say it's like the most tense film I've seen, but there are moments. There's a drug deal that happens and Billy Bob is standing up the whole time. And that just makes me uncomfortable <laughs> because you, you've been in a room with someone who's standing up while something is going on. And it's like, they're trying to dominate. Like they're, that's a dominating position and it creates tension. Um, and I just think that film does those things really well. Um, Cynthia Williams is, is really great as our femme fatale and bill paxton as our you know our protagonist who we think is this morally pretty good guy he seems like he's you know an upstanding guy and then we learn later on the twist with uh the one character and you kind of like oh you know everyone's kind of flawed in this movie which harpens back to how noir films usually uh, work with the, you know, moral ambiguity and, and such. So I, I really enjoyed this. I, I watched it and then I've been sick. So I've had some time where I'm just like, okay, I need to lay down and, you know, watch something. And I watched the last like 20 minutes when they're, when he and her reunited the house. Yeah. Then basically after that is 20 minutes. And I think, movie guide is full of shit. Like the finale of this movie is fantastic. Like it's amazing. And there's a moment at the end with a kid and, and uh, Bill Paxton's character. That's really sort of touching. Um, yeah, man, we talked about it earlier, but Bill Paxton is like throwing heat in this movie. Not only does he look amazing, but he's playing the Southern guy who is sort of your like small town, like, police officer who's kind of oh shucks sort of way i feel like i i feel like i know that guy like i've always come across he he, he's just that guy you've hung out with and uh you like him but then in the middle of the conversation he'll say something yeah and then you'll say the n-word yeah you're like whoa where'd that come from (laughs) yeah but growing up in the areas i mean kansas and indiana and you know kentucky yeah yeah you, you you come across those those folks where you go there's some of the nicest, most down to earth people. And then there's just this side to them that all of a sudden you're like, wow, you, you haven't, you haven't caught up to where we're at right now. Yeah. Have you yep. Yep. <laughs> socially? Um, but it, there's just a rawness to this that I, I really, really appreciate. Um, again, like there's a convenience, like there's just like a simple convenience store where Billy Bob's eating a burrito. Even that starts ratcheting up the tension. Yeah. And then they get out and then immediately they show that the cop is following them. And then like you're dreading the outcome of this already because it's like 35 minutes into the movie. You're like, well, I know how this is going to end. It's not going to end well for the cop. Um, so yeah, man, I, I, I really like this a lot. I, I mean, like I said, I watched the last 25 minutes again today just to make sure I, you know, caught everything because it does, it does kind of kind of ratchet things up pretty quickly once they are reunited there. Um, and once they kind of give the revelation on their relationship is, and do you think, uh, let's talk about reservoir dogs. It, it is an unfair comparison, uh, 
This very, especially to, with me, but yes, yes. To, especially with you. But I, I would say I've, I've always um, kind of wondered this. What was it about reservoir dogs, which is another crime thriller? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe it's just this bombastic style, this um, edge uh, that, that really came out of, almost nowhere in 92. Um, and, and reservoir dogs is just like why reservoir dogs and not one false move. Yeah. Why, why did sort of the, the lightning in a bottle kind of go to Tarantino that year versus this one? I mean, reservoir dogs kind of comes into the room and swings its dick around. Like it's loud and (laughs) bombastic. Like it it really, like it's, it's loud. And you know, the first scene of the film is talking about like a version from Madonna and, and I'm sure that people are like, what the hell am I even watching? Um, and, you know, I, I think the soundtrack also helps. And there's a memorable scene with the ear. And there's just a lot of stuff. But, like, Reservoir Dogs is in your face, loud. Here I am. Like, I'm here to wreck shit up. One False Move is sort of, like, over in the corner, like, doing what it's supposed to do really well but not like pointing us. It's not like the guy on the corner of the street with the sign that says, you know, with a big arrow pointing saying, you know, hey, cell look phones at me. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, it's almost trying not to be noticed in a way. Okay. I, I, I I'll say this. But um, that doesn't, I, I don't think that's a, a, any sort of critique on its quality. No, it's not. It's it, when, when I think about like the, the topic we're doing this month and we're talking about this neo-noir, you've got two of the, the, in my opinion, the best films to come out of the nineties in, in this genre came out theatrically the same year. I think as, as much as um, reservoir dogs is all of those things that you said, I think one false move is, but just in a different vein but I think they're they're both two American classics, and um, but for me, one false move has this depth and layer that Reservoir Dogs isn't touching. Um, it has, I mean, Reservoir Dogs has more style, et cetera, and it's trying to do something different than what One False Move is. Yeah, but it, but it's yep. a shame because I almost think One False Move in any other year maybe it would have done a little bit better if it actually got released in 91 or something of that nature. Yeah. If it comes out in 91, it's probably a different story. Yeah. Cause I, I always thought that was funny that it couldn't get that Sundance um, crowd going because they're like, no, 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 we've already got a crime thriller. And it's from this one guy, this video store clerk. And, and to me, I feel like uh, that's how this movie gets treated. Sometimes it's like, Oh, I've got reservoir dogs. What do I need this one for? I mean, Robert Redford thought so. And, and to be fair, like besides them coming out in the same year and being crime thrillers, they're really not closely related. No, they're completely different. They they, they yeah. dip their well, they're firmly planted in neo noir. Um, yeah, but one is a completely different neo noir than yeah, the other. Yeah, different one. different take. But yeah. I'll, I'll say this: this for me is hands down one of the best films to come out of the early nineties and definitely one of the best modern film noirs ever made, even all the way up to 2023. So, I mean, the story is very much a blend of film noir and a Western it's, it's a retelling of high noon, 
with this interesting racial tension and twists that highlight the darker side of all the characters. Like you said, Bill Paxton comes out as almost like this country bumpkin and um, really likable, nice guy. But as the story goes and you peel back these layers, you get to know him. There's this darker side to him. Um, and I like that the film gives you a little bit of social commentary um, on social structure and class mm-hmm. um, between like the city folks and the country folks. And oh yeah, like the guys from LA coming, yeah, yeah. I, I, and making fun of Hurricane, then, like looking down on him. Like there's the scene where they basically make fun of him for wanting to come out to LA and join the force there. Yeah, so yeah. You, you you get these all all these layers um, that make it super interesting. And what's cool is the film really works as pure pulp entertainment for everything that we like about film noir. But it can also work as a really interesting social commentary on race, power, class, and like the dark side of human nature. Um, And we've kind of touched on this. I want to start with the script. I think Billy Bob Thornton um, and Tom Emerson, Mm -hmm. Epperson, Epperson, sorry, their script is just amazing. It's, It's this really dark story with these bits of comedy. Um. And it has this denseness and authenticity that you just don't see in a lot of films. And you believe these characters exist and it's in this world. And and what's funny is there's this scene where uh, they're going to go out to this house to see um, if this father has had contact um, with the Billy Bob Thornton character. The uncle is he's an uncle. There's an uncle, yeah. Yeah. But on the way there, they get a call because somebody had been out drinking, and his wife locked him out of the house, and so Hurricane has to stop by, and the guy has an axe, and and you know the the two city detectives have their guns drawn, and they're watching this whole thing play out, and he's he's talking to the guy who's had this drinking binge sort of off the, I don't know, off the cliff, and. And the wife is like, well, I told him I'd let him. I mean, how this whole plays out. And he's like, okay, we'll just put the ax back in the shed. And he's like, I'm not going to arrest my husband, are you? No, no, no. You're going to let him back in the house. And it's this very comedic event that shows that social class disparity between, you know, what the city folks think versus how things are handled in this rural life. Yep. Um, And it reminds me, have you ever done a ride along before with like police officers and everything? I have not. Okay. So I did one in Evansville, Indiana when I was okay. when I was training with the cops and, and like judo and stuff. So I got to do a ride along. And uh, one of the stops we had was um, we had gotten a call. So these grandparents um, were being threatened by their grandson. So the, the, the grandfather had um, told the grandson to clean up his room and do the laundry. And so this 20-something-year-old kid was now threatening to kill his grandfather. And so the grandmother calls the police and then we show up. And so when you do the ride along, because I signed all the things and I had trained with these guys and stuff like that, they're like, Oh, you can come in too. And just here's, here's a gun. <laughs> no, I, I got the flashlight and all this yeah. other stuff. Um, but they did tell me where like, and it goes down. Here's where the shotgun is the key to that. Da, da, da. But um, as we go in they're they're talking, they're talking everybody down. It, it was almost this is the same sequence. You're not really going to kill him. Are you? No, but he needs to respect my boundaries and da da. da and, so they're playing counselor, right? And um, they're like, well, do you want to press charges? No, we just want them to listen and blah, blah, blah. And so we leave. And uh, as, as I'm talking to the, the officers I'm with, because 
I, one of them I'd known for years. And, um, he's like, yeah, we're out here a couple times a month. That's, that's just like part of the routine. And what I love about this film is you've got this really tense, just tense film with these three sociopaths coming to this small town. But the movie takes time to give you this very realistic, like this is how they would handle that scenario in sort of small town Arkansas. Yeah, you could because you could argue you could cut that scene and the film is no different. I I actually think but you, it's important. Yeah, if you cut that scene, you lose out on on the hurricane character mm-hmm. and you also oh, lose absolutely. out on the social commentary that's going on. But if someone said, oh, this movie is 105 minutes, it needs to be 100. They would look at that scene as like, yeah, it probably needs to go. It doesn't really help the story, but it does. And it builds that character of hurricane for sure. Um, I, yeah, I, I like that scene quite a bit as well. Well, it's a great contrast to what happens in the first 15 minutes of the film. I mean, if you think about it, think about the first 15 minutes of this, of this movie is spent with these murders and you really see the darkest side of these characters and it sets things in motion. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't explain anything. It's like here are three people and they pretty much murder two households and now they're on their way to another part of the country and they're going to run into hurricane who has never drawn his gun and um, solves, you know, these, these issues through this sort of Southern diplomacy. And that is a, I mean, it's the high noon script more or less. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but it really establishes this, these dark characters in this unrelenting sadistic force that's heading for this family man who happens to be this cop. Right. Um, and you, you get this comparing contrast between those two scenes, but then as the movie goes on, you get this darker side of hurricane. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, things aren't as good. And he's not the person you thought he was in the beginning. And he's abused his power and he's taken advantage of some people. And that's, I mean, to lay that script out that way and to have those two scenes sort of in the front of the film and then where this film goes to me, that that's really amazing script writing and storytelling. Yeah, Yeah, it it really is. Um, Do you find it convenient that he immediately notices Fantasia and is like, Oh, I know that person. I don't think he finds it because there's some scenes there where um, he sees her son and mm-hmm. he stops to watch. And so, you know, something's going on because he's, he's very um, attentive in the background to her brother and the little kid that's with her brother. Yeah. And so it, I don't, I don't find it convenient. I think there's these little moments that set up, and for a guy who's carrying around this guilt and this mistake, of course he's going to recognize her in in a in a picture. Yes, but he happens to see the picture, and she happens to be doing crime. I'm trying to, so I'm trying, and this probably is why I shouldn't. I'm trying to put my mind in the movie guide review when they say like a convenient. The movie, of, guide re, the movie guide reviews full shit. I, I, it's I, totally yeah, full yeah. shit. Okay. 
I shouldn't do that to myself. My brain. No, but I mean, if somebody, if somebody made that criticism is like, Oh, this movie is filled with too many conveniences. I'm like, so is high noon. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so are some of the great classic films. I mean, sometimes you have to have those seats have to be made. Yeah. To, to forward the plot in this order. It's all about what are you doing around those conveniences to actually still tell an interesting story I think that's where the characters come in. Mm Mm-hmm. So the script has very interesting characters, but then you have actors and primarily our four that really those performances are are just freaking amazing. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton eating chicken in the hotel room with Michael Beach on the on the corner, like reading a newspaper. And then all of a sudden you get this power play between those two mm-hmm. and who's controlling who. Then you see um, <laughs> Fantasia come in. And you see her pulling the strings with, you know, Billy Bob Thornton's character. Again, it's a it's a really interesting script that is showing you the the power dichotomy at play here. But then the performances just highlight all that stuff. Yeah, I I, I think you could argue. Well, the script's very good too, but just the performances of those four really elevate this to something really really special. No, not now the the scripts and the story really help, but it, it's hard to imagine other people in these roles. Um, and like I said, when I was talking about Billy Bob Thornton, when we were just talking about it, like he's got this weird edge to him that I don't know if it's unsettling because he's got long hair and that ponytail, oh, that ponytail. <laughs> out. but it's, it's, he says, you know, he's ready to go off. Um, and Pluto is always like, whispering to himself and talking to himself about, you know, chill out, man, just be cool, be cool. Um, because he knows once Billy Bob goes off, then he's going to have to go off. So it, it, again, this, this film just is like textbook. How do you do tension in a film, but also like build characters and also have a good story. Like, sure. The tension is great in this, but you have to have other things as well. A film just can't be tense for tense purposes it's got to have something else going on um and 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 this one really goes for it like i keep thinking about that scene with the drugs and the guy has eight like they kill a guy and he has eight dollars yeah like i I think i think of the scene where they go to exchange the car and they're talking to the car dealership then a few scenes later he's coming out with a knife and an apple and he's cutting the apple feeding it to her and that just puts me on edge because she's having to take the apple piece off the knife. Yeah. And then she says, Oh, I'm really glad you didn't kill that guy at the car dealership. And then he has that laugh about well, what, what kind of people do you think we are? Like, and, and then he's like, Oh, and you think I'm going to hurt you. I would never hurt you. So what, what's interesting is you, you've already talked about that scene where you go into the convenience store and they're, they're getting the burrito, and you're like, what's going to go down here? Um, and it's extremely tense, but they make it out. Then the cop follows them, and then what transpires on the side of the, of the road is shocking. But you never know when these three are going to just either lose their cool or do some calculated murder. Mm-hmm. You're always guessing. I love that. And at any point in time, they could kill each other which I, I get that yeah. sense. There's always as well. that too. There's always the factor of, Oh, 
these two guys or all three of these people are just going to kill each other because uh, they're tired of each other. They don't trust. They don't really truly trust each other. Um, it, it also it also makes me laugh when I watch this because it's from filmed in 1991. Yeah, guy gets two burritos. She's got a bag of chips and they got a bunch of stuff. She's like seven ninety five. You're like, wow, <laughs> man, that's. Uh, crazy they pay for breakfast and the guy throws a five dollar bill on the table for breakfast i'm like good lord oh he was like 40 cents short or something like that well yeah Yeah. no it's and it's great so you you've got this back and forth where again this unrelenting force is headed towards bill paxton and these two you know la police detectives Mm -hmm. and you bounce back and forth between these two environments and as they get closer and closer the tension is ratcheting in, you know, our three sociopaths because of who they're coming across. But then as they go back to the story of hurricane, you really are thinking there's no way if he goes up against these three, he's going to survive. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I, every time I watch this film, I'm always surprised at how Carl Franklin and, and, um, kind of sets this up and you as a viewer know that these two things are coming together at some point that last 20 minutes. And in your head, you're like, there's, there's, there's no way it can resolve in a good way. Um, given all the things you know about hurricane and how he does his policing and the lifestyle he lives mm-hmm. versus these three sociopaths. It's crazy. Yeah. And the, and, and ultimately, yeah, we have the other two cops in this film, at the end, the climax is those four people yeah. in the house and what transpires is pretty brutal. Um, it is. I mean, this is, again, I don't know if you're a big fan of high noon. I love that. I've, I, yeah. It was one of the, when, when, when we were learning how to write screenplays, that was the one that they gave us to study. And if, and if you talk about execution of tension and, and basically the, the narrative in and of itself, how simple it is, but how effective it is, it's amazing that they pretty much took that same premise, but layered in all these very interesting facets and commentary of the world in 1991 terms on top of that. So the question I have for you though, is you have this amazing script. I really do think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You have these four performances, Bill Paxton, like you said, it's just freaking fantastic. What does Carl Franklin bring to the table? <laughs> um, is it a case that all he had to do was point the camera because it, everything it, else was so good? It, it feels like that, but that is so diminishing what a director does. You know, he's probably given direction to a lot of these performances to get what he wants. Um, but then you think about it, it's like, well, it's his first film. So was he? But then on the other side, you're you're thinking, well, Tarantino's doing that for Reservoir Dogs, and I'm not comparing Carl Franklin to Quentin Tarantino. Obviously, the filmographies speak for themselves, but it it feels like all he had to do was get out of the way and let things happen. Um, and sometimes that's like what a director should do. Yeah, not be in the way. I don't know. I. Th- I, I mean, I, I'm sure he's not David Fincher and he's not like, you know, obsessing over the, the camera angles and where things are and all this stuff. But sure, I'm sure he did some 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 great work, but 
it, it, it feels like you could kind of just set this one out and it was going to come back pretty well done. Yeah, I, I think he had a great head start because of the script and the performances. And maybe that's a better way to put it. Like he's got a he does his handicap is already up because he doesn't have to start at zero. He's starting at like a five and all he's got to do is get you know, a few more things right. And he's got a 10. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about some key scenes, though, like the murder at the side of the road, how that's mm-hmm. filmed, framed, um, the surprise that occurs and how it's set up. I think is really shocking. And I think that does come from Carl Franklin's direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the last 20 minutes. Do you like it going out to the wide though at the end? Like I, I do. Okay. Like I, that, that's where I think he, his influence is coming in to where he's trying to add style, but um, like he's, he's making sure that the camera does not take away with the important thing, which is the, the storytelling through the performances. But I do like you get some sequences like in the in that last 20 minutes, you get this camera angle where it is a Dutch angle and it's tilted and you're seeing Michael Beach from a certain angle or Billy Bob Thornton as they're heading to the house. Because that I mean, that that scene by the road is very important because of that moment in time. Fantasia is just as bad as the other two people. Yes. Up until that point, she had not killed anybody. And and we actually sympathized with her, with her choice of, of not telling on the child. Yep. And so that moment is very important to her turn. And he doesn't really linger on her remorse at all. No, it's very matter. She does have a moment, but. Billy Bob gives her the affirmative that it was a good choice and it's kind of left. It is, but it, I don't know if you've seen the poster for this at the bottom of that poster yeah. is that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's super powerful. I love the fact that he will put that medium to close shot when it's important, but he also pans back the camera so you can kind of take in this almost um, Americana painting on screen with the violence mm-hmm. that's happening. So, I, I do think Carl Franklin as a director really ratchet is just, he takes the content and he brings it up a level, even though the content is really good within the screenplay and the performances. And he, he does some very smart choices with the camera work. So it, the camera doesn't feel intrusive. I mean, this almost, almost feels like a documentary to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could definitely be like a true crime documentary. I, I think of it this way. If, if this thing were shot in black and white, it would not lose any of its effectiveness. And I, I might actually prefer it. Like that night scene, you know, you would get the flash of the gun would be much more profound. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, it's, Ooh. um, give me the black and white cut. <laughs> I agree, man. I mean, this, this is to me like the, the perfect example of modern film noir th- that, just has that sort of Texarkana Western motif weaved into it. Um, and, and I can't, I can't say this enough, like for, for any film collector, if you don't have this in your collection, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice, man. Yeah. We, you know, we, we have certain films that we've done in our 178 episodes that were like, look, this hasn't been seen by enough people. 
this goes on the paint. This goes on the 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 Mount Rushmore of, of bombs for us. Like this is one of the ones that people should really go out and check out. Yeah, I I agree hundred percent. It the thing it's I don't know. It's the type of it's the type of movie that makes you love film, mm-hmm. and it's the it's a great gateway drug to film noir. Like this is this is how you start a month long discussion on neo noirs. You start with this one. Um, I think all the ones we've picked are super interesting, but I think this gives you a great example of like, look, if everything lives up to this template, I think we're, you're okay. Yeah. It's very interesting that we're also ending the month with simple plan. Yeah. Which also has Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton playing way different characters. Uh, but again, sort of like a Southern kind of take on film noir, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of close that out and see how it how it happens. Yeah, I I, I agree hundred percent. Well, I mean, any other thoughts on this one from from your perspective? No, man. I mean, it 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 really kind of completes the mission that it set out set out to do. Um, and I'm I, I watch this and I I see other things that Carl Franklin's done, and I know he's he's gone on to complete still work and things like that, but it feels like he could have been much bigger. And I'm kind of sad that he's not because even following this up with devil in the blue dress, like another film noir mystery thriller is like, got a great performance from Denzel Washington, Tom Sizemore, Don Cheadle, I know, is in that, but it's like this guy is getting performances out of people that are like a, a director that can pull performances out of people. You feel like, oh, actors want to want to work for that guy because he's going to get the best out of me, and then he just kind of flounders and doesn't do a whole lot. High Crimes is fun. like all of his films after that are like fine and they're good. I, well, this this is the best but in his filmography. No one's gonna be like, I don't. I, yeah, it, this is the best, but no one's gonna be like, Carl Franklin's my favorite director. But if someone said Carl Franklin was their favorite director, I'd be like, well, he did do one false move. That's pretty solid. It is. I, I hey, I'll be the first to say. I I really think the secret ingredient here is Billy Bob Thornton, because Billy Bob wrote that screenplay. Mm-hmm. He plays. Um, he play, he plays that character perfectly. I mean, obviously he kind of feel like that might be Billy Bob in real it, life. It could but. be. I mean, he he steals every scene he's in, um, and I don't know. He just he he has this uh, charm, but yet but creepiness. It, but uh, it also kind of plays it because like noir does have that melodramatic feel to it. Yeah. And he's kind of playing the part as melodramatic. He's turned up. He's melodramatic, um, and I, and I kind of like that. He is. I, I I think I think he's the secret ingredient. Like if if Carl Franklin had, uh, I, I don't I don't know if he was ever going to achieve this. Whereas Billy Bob Thornton kept going. I mean, when you get mm-hmm. to Sling Blade, I think Sling Blade is is another like amazing film from the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really comes down to, and, and we'll probably talk about this when we talk about a simple plan, 
then you add in Bill Paxton, which is another powerhouse. Like th- this, where all the all the elements came together. But really, it's it's super important to understand that Billy Bob Thornton did the screenplay and he starred in this thing, and that gave uh, Carl Franklin a huge head start. Now he yeah. he added some great director flourishes to this. I think I think he he creates some very interesting sequences. Um, but he's never achieved anything as good as this in his filmography. I think I think his other stuff's good. This is master class cinema right here. I, I think I think it's a shame that it doesn't get put in the pantheon of great nineties films. Uh or or just American films in general. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not even nineties. Like I'm, I'm trying to think of something. But even like, just shrink it even down to that. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even in there. Oh, I know. No, you're right. Again, not to take anything away from Reservoir Dogs, but I often wonder, like, was the Sundance effect really um, what the general populace kind of treated this thing as? Like, oh, we've got Reservoir Dogs. What do we need a, a one false move for? Um, but I am glad that we had a Siskel and Ebert to champion this thing. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd be the first to say it. I'd have to go back. I I think Malcolm X was, I'm trying to remember, Malcolm X might have been Ebert's pick, and then this was number two, and then this was Siskel's number one. It would definitely be in the in the top three of the movies, in my opinion, from that year. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah, because about... Um, uh, that gosh, year, man, you go back and yeah, look at 92, 93. Freaking loaded, man. Those two years are, are pretty fantastic for cinema in general. Um, uh, Malcolm X was was Ebert's number one film that year. Yeah, that's what I was saying. That was his number okay. one, and then this one was number two. Wow. Yep. So, all right. Well, I'm going to ask you the question. We just got done having a, a well, kicking off November with one false move um, from 1991 released in 92. No choice. It's not a bomb. It's not a bomb. Okay. Not at all. Not I agree even with close. You. Agree with you hundred um, percent. Go watch this movie. Yes. Go watch it. Go buy it. Please yeah. go buy the 4k. Um, it's fantastic. Buy the imprint set. Um, be silly like me. Uh, <laughs> Brad, what's, what's the next one on our little journey? Yeah. So next week is a little interesting because uh, we're, we're, we're taking a film and uh gonna look at so it's it's a film that was released and then they <laughs> <Duh>. decided <laughs> then they decided well we need an american release of it as well okay um and it is girl with the dragon tattoo uh david fincher's version of it um it is a very uh interesting film to say the least um have you seen the uh original i the trilogy i love yeah. the trilogy and okay, i've read, the, read books the books too yep okay it, i have a lot to say i have a lot to say but we will have a guest next week this guest has begged us and begged us to do this film ever since we knew him and he better and it, show up he better not like stand us up on this too that's <laughs> no, what i'm worried I, about I, I know he has got this circled on his uh on his calendar and is going to be here so uh yeah it's uh going to be interesting because we just talked about fincher with fight club and we're we're coming back with with girl of the dragons at so okay and if anybody wants to prepare what are the two after that yeah so <laughs> they're gonna for the week after that you're gonna have to watch two films if you want to really play the game uh we're gonna look at 1990s narrow margin 
But we're also going to look at the original source of that, the narrow margin from 1952, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we're going to round out the month with, like I said, simple plan. Yeah. So. I'm, are, are you trying to concentrate on a lot of film noir uh, movies this month while, while we do this? Yeah. So, yeah. So I immediately, November 1st, horror films are done. Well, I mean, we watch horror films all the time. Yeah. Like, I just, I watched one the other night. So, yeah. Uh, what do you think about when evil lurks? You really like it? It was freaking fantastic. I told my family that they're going to get kicked out of the house unless they watch it in the next week. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I will go back and start probably checking off. I've got the ones that I watch a lot. Maltese Falcon, double indemnity, sunset Boulevard, you know, all the, you know, all the big hitters, but I'm trying to do the ones that I haven't seen, or it's been a while, or maybe ones that, aren't as you know highly regarded and just watch those um you just watched one and uh, i was like oh i haven't seen that in forever so that's going to be on my list as well well yeah i got i gotta watch any I, I mean a november for me is not complete without watching something maybe even a couple of veronica lake and alan ladd films because i'm a huge fan of what they did and mm-hmm. i have watched the glass key so far um which i love that film so much and uh, a first time watch already for me was House of Bamboo from 1955. Ooh, okay. Um, I, oh, I didn't realize that was your first time seeing that. Yeah, I had never seen it. Um, so that was uh, Robert Stack and Robert mm-hmm. Ryan. That that was uh, Sam Fuller, I think, did uh, some of the screenplay to that or story. So yeah, yeah that was that was an interesting. That was an interesting yeah, watch. That's the same. That's the Sam Fuller uh, joint. Yeah. So uh, it was it was good, but. Yeah, anything with Veronica Lake, Alan Ladd. I, th- I think I might watch the was it the Black Dahlia? That'd be another one I watch of theirs. Mm-hmm. But I gotta. Start. Have you seen uh, Have you seen Sam Fuller's The Naked Kiss? Yep, I okay. I like that one. Okay. Yeah, I have so, that's more, I have so that's much more Neo, but yeah, yeah. I got I got I got a stack. I didn't make it through my stack in October, but I'm I'm gonna be dedicated and get through a lot of those Kino Lorber film noir yeah. box sets. Yeah, if you're if you're really into wanting to get noir films and kind of their best visual that you can see them because I, I love the way high definition black and white films yes. look. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, look at Kino. Um, Criterion also has, has some as well. Um, yeah, but check them out. Cause if you can get 4k or blu-ray of a black and white films, it's really worth it. Yeah. And shout, shout factory has the uh, Veronica Lake, Alan Ladd stuff. So, oh, yes, that's right. They do. All right. We do have a little bit of listener feedback. So, I'm going to share this. Um, the first one is about a Breaking Brad episode, though. So, okay. yeah, this is from Lance. Uh, he titled the email, I Love the Torture. Answer, Lance. Sorry. There's a Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I'll be honest. Right, a little black medical book. Sorry. You, you want to just go through the movie right now? No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. All right. Uh, so Lance says, I'll be honest. I'm a bit of an idiot. When I first found this podcast a few months ago, I didn't fully read the breaking Brad episodes and thought you were reviewing breaking bad. Well, I think I said we were a couple of times. Um, when I finally brand, figured brand confusion, bringing in people because of brand confusion. I love it. It's hilarious. Um, when I finally figured out what it actually was, I instantly binged all the experiments. I just finished experiment nine and heard you all discuss closing out breaking Brad after this year. I am devastated, but I understand the torture can't go on forever. I honestly was shocked you all kept going after Love on a Leash. So were we, Lance. 
Um, just wanted to say Breaking Brad is my all-time favorite podcast, and I'd love to see more if you ever decide to pick it up again. Well, thank you, Lance. Um, yeah. But we're going to take a year off. Yeah, we're going to take a year <laughs> off. <laughs> I guess we can't do it. Yeah. Uh, and you're really going to appreciate that year off um, after December. I'm just saying. Yeah. Okay, this one's from Phil. Hey, Brad, Choi, and gang. I've been enjoying your spooky October podcast. It's been years since I've seen Dr. Giggles, Night of the Creeps in May. My 20-year-old self seemed to enjoy Dr. Giggles when it came out, but sometimes those flash-in-the-pan quickies don't stand the test of time. I remember another one like it with yet another L.A. Law alumni called The Dentist made just afterwards. I did really like May, though it was pretty gory and dark, even for my standards. It had some nice commentary on some social issues that were interesting. The lead actress really sold her role. Look forward to hearing about Fright Night. I actually never saw the original or sequel, but I'll try to look it up before the podcast. I did see the remake with Colin Farrell that came out. I remember liking it mostly because of Colin. Like Richard Gere, he seems to jump around genres and pick interesting roles, even if they're not critically or commercially hits. Keep in mind Wolfen for maybe sometime later down the line. We did. It's on the list. Don't worry. Um, It's actually not a werewolf movie at all, and some might say not even horror, but it's got a whole lot to discuss about its troubled production, like Heaven's Gate type stories. So that I love those kind of movies. Thanks for yep. putting out some great shows and another awesome spooky October month. Oh, by the way, suggestion for Breaking Brad episode, the Paris Hilton 2009 award winner, the hottie and the naughty. Oh, Jesus H. Okay. Well, 2025 that, uh, we might have to do a Paris Hilton film. Brad. Yes, sir. What other podcast should folks listen to? Yeah, they should listen to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Get Plus. Jose and Sammy are nice enough to join us for Breaking Brad. So please, since we tortured them, go check out their shows. Uh, the VHS Files, Night of the Living Podcast, the Backlook Cinema Podcast, which Zoe is back uh, podcasting again. We welcome him back. So we missed you. The Mixtape Podcast and Raiders of the Podcast. Yes, there's a YouTube channel, too, from our good friend John H., and now for something a little bit different, go Correct. see that. Check that out. Tell them that Brad and Troy from Not A Bomb sent you. Troy, also, we are working on some new sort of merchandise. We never talk about that stuff. Uh, oh, yeah, we've we, had one we logo, but it is some stuff working on in the background, so we can't wait to talk about that when it happens. But, you know, we got some things spinning. We got those plates us spinning, Troy. I like it. I like it. Uh, I, I want to just say a quick thank you to everybody. Um, it, it seems like, especially between uh, Facebook, Instagram, we've got a lot of just. Hey, guess what? Horror fans will come out of the woodwork oh if my we start God. talking about horror movies. Yeah. Troy uh, and I were like, hey, maybe we just talk about horror movies from now on because our audience would be way bigger. If, if I mean, we could do it. Yeah. There's a lot of bombs to cover. Um, but yeah, just thank you. It would, I think. I think my favorite part is just uh, being able to get a message um, and, and talk about a film, get a recommendation. I love the fact everybody was was just so hyped about Fright Night 2. Heck, all the movies, Night of the Creeps. Mm-hmm. We got some great you know suggestions. Um, even posting little things uh, when we kicked off this month and said, hey, we're just you know watching this film noir masterpiece and other people sharing what they're watching and playing along, just you know dipping their toes in the genre. It's been a lot of fun. So we'll try and be more consistent. I actually want to, uh, for those who um, follow us on social media, 
Brad and I are, are avid readers too. And we, we love books about film. So anytime we find something, uh, and there's tons of great film noir books, we -hmm. might talk about that in some of the coming episodes, but we'll share those on social media as well. And I'll, I'll just say it right now. Hamiltonbooks.com is a great source to kind of keep your eye out on just movie books in general. I mean, they, they have a pretty good source for everything, DVDs, Blu-rays, et cetera. But I'm always amazed at their isn't select. It, isn't it singular book? Is it, oh, sing, is it singular book? book? Yeah, we'll we'll try and post the right one. But you you can find Hamilton book, and um, I just found this great film noir like hardcover book for 15 bucks that normally goes for like 40 dollars, mm-hmm. um, and it's a TCM book. So uh, we'll we'll try and share all that stuff with you. But thank you so much for for playing along and and leaving comments. It, it's been a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess with that, we're all wrapped up, right? I believe so. I'm, I made it. Oh, my voice. I, we didn't even say where to send in feedback. Oh yeah. So if you want to send in suggestions or feedback, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com or you can head over to not a bomb podcast.com hit the contact us button. Uh, leave us a message there. Um, or you can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if uh, our, our good friend, Randy, had sent us uh, a voicemail. I gotta, I gotta try and get ported over so I can share it about one of our episodes. Oh boy! If you want, what did I do this time, Sean? What uh, did I do? It's pretty funny. Um, okay. I'll, I'll try and get that loaded up for for our next listener feedback session. But if you want to send us any audio, you can always send it to our email. If it's an MP3, we'll try and find a way to play it on here. Just make sure it's uh, it it's not too, um, you know, like. PG 13 okay. I guess just, I mean, we can get, we can get a few F's in there. Yeah. Just Fine. a few, just, you know, doesn't have to be clean, clean, but keep it like South park clean, I guess. Is that a good comparison? Okay, if, if that's your bar. Yeah. yeah okay. There yeah. you go. Um, okay. That's the feedback. All right. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. Thanks for downloading the show. Go and watch one false move. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's fantastic. Come back next week. We're going to talk some Fincher, and um, it'll, it'll be a good time. So we'll see you then. Don't lose your head.